Hello everyone, and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, in his own surroundings is my good friend Ben. How's it going, Ben? <laughs> it's going really good. Welcome to the cabin of gaming. <laughs> Needs to alliterate, doesn't it? It does, really. Cabin of complaints. The gazebo of gaming. Stabbing cabin. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be the podcast, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's a special treat for our listeners. We're both actually in the same room at the same time. On the same sofa, with the same cup of tea. It's, yeah, but it's, it's almost... I imagine this is how people imagine it is normally. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not in a rectangle, and I can see you from the waist down. It's terrifying. Well, at least this time I'm wearing pants. Yeah, exactly. You've got to dress up for the occasion. That's We're right. going to record it. Oh, listeners, you should see what I can see. So we, we're welcome to uh, to my cabin in the woods... And um, you will notice, guess, that it is approximately 20 feet north to south and 30 feet east to west. There is one entrance, but it's a double door. There don't appear to be any hostile people in here, but that could change rapidly. <laughs> and there are some uh, artfully arranged pot plants on top of a bookshelf. What do you do? That's a, a wonderful description of this dungeon ring. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go and search for secret doors, I think. And possibly traps and maybe treasure. Yes. So this is the... Uh, this is the dungeon episode. We're going to go deep, deep, deep underground into rectilinear rooms and talk about graph paper mm. and maybe take it into the 21st century and see what corridors and chambers, I'd say I've gone exotic there, chambers, not rooms, what they can do. Is it still something that works in modern day role playing? And obviously this is where everybody got their beginning and my little introduction to the room is kind of a classic piece of box text. It could come from 1981, mm. couldn't it? Yes. Um, Great dungeons of our time. What's good about dungeons? What's bad about dungeons? What can we learn from dungeoneering? And to repeat my earlier question, I guess, in the 21st century, what room is there for sprawling underground complexes? Now, what chamber is there for a sprawling underground complexes? <laughs> <laughs> what vestibule is there? <laughs> Which kind of atrium? Yeah, interesting one, isn't it? I think it, like the classic Dungeons & Dragons has dungeons in the title, and it was about largely initially anyway going into dungeons wasn't it? Was the thing. Yep. is that still part of role playing today I don't know I think for a segment of people there still is an element of that and even if you watched uh, Critical Role say a couple of years ago or something their segments would be largely a bunch of people talking in a pub mm. and character development and stuff like that but at some point even if it was only like a 3D printed model of two rooms in a dungeon they would do that Yeah, they still have the dungeon bit uh, and it's it's probably changed now from what it was when uh, the dungeon used to be the focus, didn't it? It was the, the sort of town bit or the character bits or other things were kind of incidental. The core of your adventure was going to a place with rooms mm. and investigating them and poking about and not hitting traps. And it was almost about puzzle solving and things like that to a certain extent, wasn't it? It kind of led you into, do you go left or right? And that was a major decision. Yeah. People were asking questions about what can I smell? Do I see any lights down one end of the corridor? Uh, very much from a DNA of kind of the um, text-based adventure modules and, and that sort of thing. It felt more procedural, I guess, mm. back in the day. Mm. Uh, and quite often, a lot of the old dodgers didn't make any sense. <laughs> None at all. They'd be laid out in bizarre fashion. Monsters in one room wouldn't know what's happening in the next room. Didn't matter if you just killed three bugbears and they were screaming at you. Like the next room would happily have some goblins playing poker who hadn't heard all the noise and things like that. So it's a weird artificial construct, but something that everybody bought into. A very artificial construct that, as far as I know, I'm not entirely sure where it came from in the fiction of the pulp fiction that D&D sprang from. No. I don't remember a huge amount of these in the Michael Moorcock books that I was reading. Now, you've got Tolkien, you've got the Mines of Moria maybe the first mega mm -hmm. dungeon yeah, um, yeah maybe. but you know that's not classically uh, a work of fiction that you would associate with being underground in square chambers no so it is a really weird construction and by the time it got gamed um by gygax and arneson back in the day dungeons were done on graph paper and they all seemed to fill an a4 sheet of paper quite rectangular <laughs> and uh, and had all of these bizarre nonsense things like um I remember trying to trying to do the game properly by having levels because the word level got used a lot. I mean, nowadays it's the name of a cabinet post, 
but back then a level was a level. You were first level character on the first level of a dungeon. Right. And you didn't go to the second level of the dungeon until you were second level, mm -hmm. unless you really wanted to push your luck. Mm -hmm. And you weren't going to see a dragon in the first three levels, so that was okay. So the deeper you went, the more dangerous it got. Yeah. And it was um, for a game that, that advertised itself as nothing to do with a board game, that was a really quite board gamey element of moving from square to square, like on Cluedo. Yeah. Yeah, it had various elements that you kind of took. You just took a face value without thinking about it. For example, I remember there being 10 foot square rooms. Yeah. Which I always thought, oh, that's fine. But if you actually measure out 10 feet by 10 feet and you put six people in it in a bugbear, mm. they're all shoulders to shoulder. There's no room to swing a cat, let alone a battle axe. Yeah, it's like a new flat development in West London, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 10 foot square, you can't afford it, mate. No, absolutely. And everything was made out of 10 foot squares. I never really had any truck with the 5 foot square dungeon. No. It had to be, for me, it had to be five millimetre squares in your maths book. Yeah. Because the really tiny ones, the graph paper you get, it was often in blue, and it was only two or three millimetres for a square. No, I didn't like those. I didn't like, I didn't like rooms in a house either. A dungeon had to have plenty of negative space. Yes. With corridors joining two rooms for no reason at all. You really Builders don't built. put a corridor <laughs> underground to lead to another door. They just go from one to the other. So it doesn't take very long, does it, before the artifice of a dungeon... Get, had people kind of going for hitting the realism button a bit more and putting toilets in them and plumbing, and, yeah, um, and maybe not putting that dragon in a corridor or in a room that you couldn't possibly access, right? Um, so when realism hit dungeons, then I guess that what really happened, I think over decades, this would have been as well that people crawled out of the dungeon towards towns and wildernesses and so on. But what I see every now and again is a really big kind of sense from the community that oh wouldn't it be nice to get back to basics mm. like when D, &D uh, was picked up by wizards of the coast their advertising campaign was back to the dungeon um, right. and lots of their third edition adventures were were very gridded um, and it's particular to dungeons and dragons for obvious reasons but every now and again you see it come back out and of course the osr are bloody obsessed with them mm -hmm. and mega dungeons especially the yes. idea of a dungeon that's more like an underground city that you can spend days weeks or months in exploring resource management etc it never really goes away does it the dungeon no and then you get things like torchbearer where it's like the grind of going down a yeah. dungeon and how many hours left on your lantern oil you've got and stuff like that become a feature of the game mm. and i'm not sure how much I'm not sure how much it was a feature back in the day. We just kind of, because there was a limited choice of what you could play, we just kind of accepted that you go down dungeons mm. or other buildings that were gridded in a way. And yet you ground through them and you looked for the secret passages because there always were some, whether they made sense or not. And I, don't, I think we all kind of got trained to look at them in a certain way, didn't we? And yes. like, this is what you do. And like I said, an element of realism sort of started to change things, but even then it was sort of... Um, like keep on the borderlands and stuff is is a keep, but it was done as a dungeon. Mm. And the caves of chaos, really, isn't it? It's yeah, not a keep at all. <laughs> and then a series of dungeons because you got the different <laughs> modules. Yeah, that you're going from one to another. But there's like a common understanding that what you're doing was going to another location to grind your way through it and mm. trying not to trigger the traps and trying to find where the good stuff was hidden. And like you said, the OSR movement has done a bit of that. We had um, Chris McDowell on mm. into the odds fame and Electric Bastion Land discussing with him about his games and he was saying like why are you there what therefore with OSR he's always told that you can find the treasure and get some but there's nothing in these books really to buy with treasure no but it's just the goal in and of itself almost and then he, even he said he's forgotten to put treasure in his dungeons sometimes <laughs> so he gets the point of place saying what are we even doing yeah uh, uh, there's always a point where you start breaking the fourth wall in dungeon <laughs> games isn't it where you just think if the guy in the pointy hat and the guy with the big steel shield actually said what are we doing here <laughs> then yeah it does get a little bit a little bit hard but then yeah, too much realism and you do end up in that it's a horror movie isn't it going yeah. to a hole in the ground which is full of stuff that would devour you on site in the dark to get some copper coins, which you have to like, you know, and if you get an infection down there or you break a leg, you're absolutely screwed. And it used to be called Fantasy Vietnam, didn't it? For that basis, yeah. you'd have to tap everything with your 10 foot pole because you know, you were a save or die away from tearing up your character sheet. It sounds rubbish. Yeah. 
<laughs> and what do you do with this treasure? You buy more stuff to go back down another dangerous hole. Yes. With bigger monsters in it and more challenges. Yeah. It's not. It's not a good career, is it? No. But but the, it's, I'm reminded of the web comics where it's got Sisyphus push, pushing his rock up the thing, <laughs> which is terrible until the demon puts up like a score counter of how many times he's done it, and all of a sudden it becomes <laughs> a lot more fun. And it feels a little bit like that with dungeons sometimes, doesn't it? You just kind of want to keep doing them. Yeah. For the sake of doing them uh, and seeing what interesting stuff there is or what, in what way it'd be. I think that's where it started to develop is like, why would it be interesting or what makes it cool? So I'm reminded of some of the like Deserts of Desolation series. There's one where there's a, like an Arabian Night style uh, palace or whatever with minarets and so forth and it's frozen in time mm-hmm. or the time slowed down so much that it might as well be frozen in time. And it has interesting bits like there's a, a bead curtain and you can see someone going to be assassinated on the far side of it. But because it's frozen, you can't get through the beads, but you can see through them. Absolutely. You have to work your way around and find which doors are open and stuff like that. And yeah, so that's that. That then takes dungeons into like, why is this cool while we're here? It's like, well, that's because it's cool to explore that kind of thing. I think uh, a lot of people got fed up of just generic dungeons mm. with orcs and goblins in because that's very samey. Uh, and with any creative hobby, it comes down to how can we do this thing but make it more interesting or cooler or give people different things to do or think about. Yeah, absolutely. That was going to be one that I would mention as well. Love the Desert of Desolation, Pharaoh. Oh, we used to sort of White Palm and Lost Tomb of Martek is the one you mean. And um, yeah, my favourite scene from that is there is an arrow in mid-flight yes. hanging in the air um, and it's going to hit the king in the back of the head, I think. So when you eventually get to press the Go Now button, you can see exactly what's going to happen. And um, one of the remarkable things about it is that it meant that the dungeon map which before this just used to be on what blue and white card on the inside of the module cover, didn't it? Mm-hmm. And doors were marked by little rectangles, and sometimes you might get elaborate and have an S written through it or a double door. Well, in these ones, whether a door was open, closed, or ajar made a massive difference because right. you couldn't move the doors, but if you were skinny, you could sneak through one that was just ajar um, and just resetting everything. Now, I mean, what it does now is it makes it reminds you of video game puzzle levels, but of course, then. There weren't any video game puzzle levels. They were invented by this kind of thing. Yeah. Very clever people with graph paper and an idea of how to put together a situation which was almost classic role-playing. If you were living in the corporate world, they go, we're going to do team building. Yeah, so yeah, you've yeah. Got, you've got a, a piece of tarpaulin, some chalk, you've got two fish hooks, and you're in a hot air balloon. <laughs> what <laughs> do you do? It sounds quite Dungeon World at that point, doesn't it? Does, it does, definitely. Yeah, and... I think another game that we, we love, Earth Dawn, added the, the element to it where there was underground cares that become mm. people used to live in for hundreds of years and then have reemerged, and there may or may not be monsters down there and there's old, old treasures and forgotten things. Uh, it created a reason why the dungeons even exist. Yeah. Which I think was a good... That, that was just... Uh, when we first read it in 1993 or whatever it was, that, that, that was a bit of a mind-blowing one. Like mm. People writing a game and explaining the stuff that happens to the game in the fiction of the game itself. So... People would talk to each other about levels or what circle sword master are you? It was a thing. Yeah. And just get that gave it a little bit more legitimacy as well. It's like, why is there this dungeon of the ground full of stuff? And there might be monsters as well. Read the backstory of Earth Dawn, you understand why they're there. Yeah. And it, it makes sense in the game. I always find it a little bit odd in the early D&D things why there were so many dungeons and what, what the monsters were even doing down there. Mm. Or what, what, why were they alive? What was their goal? What were they even doing themselves? Yeah, me too, and um, and I think loads of people did that, and that, and those ripples have gone through gaming, and, and in future episodes we'll talk about what's outside the dungeon, but what's fascinating to me is that people still want to go, they have a lot of affection, maybe it's nostalgia, but there are more and more new products coming out every day on drive through that are essentially procedurally generated room and chamber mm-hmm. with uh, roller d6, you'll either get a trap, a monster, an empty room, trap and monster, in an empty room, there's <laughs> <Combination laughs> a table, yeah. and that procedurally generated stuff still holds a lot of appeal. And in board gaming, which is a very, very fast moving dynamic space for a lot of creativity and a lot of money as well, the dungeon crawler is a massive genre all of its own. Yeah, there are people, a good friend of the show, Steam Forge Matt, makes a game called Bard Sun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that you know, you've got people who want to play, pay a lot of money on eBay for original Hero Quest from yes, Workshop Milton yeah. Bradley. Um, there is a big sense of wizard, fighter, thief, cleric yeah. going down the steps into a 30-foot chamber with flaming torches in sconces. And a bit like Gauntlet, the old video game, yeah. like that, where you've got your four main characters with different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. Now, 
I think I, I, I still have a lot of affection for Dungeons, but obviously, as a man of, of taste and a connoisseur of gaming, as you are and I am not, I think it's really interesting to see what happened with that basic kind of training wheels that everybody... I think everybody went through. If you got into the hobby in the 90s through Vampire, you're probably wondering what on earth we're talking about. But I think most people, most of our audience certainly will know what a dungeon is. Mm. But some of those skills that you learn as a player and as a GM, or specifically a DM, obviously a dungeon master, they still have ripples in all other games today, I think. I still see, I still see a tendency to, uh, to want to camp, to resource manage, to be tentative with decision making, yeah. to have teams and a party all trying to achieve something together, it's um, it's there's some classic methods of operation that you see in Call of Cthulhu, that you see in Traveller, that you see in Feng Shui even perhaps. Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you think we learnt the right skills for modern gaming, no. or is it holding us back? <laughs> yeah, it's holding some people question. back. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> so there's um. There was a point where uh, it was quite adversarial, that almost like, and it's still a bit of a meme, and there's still Viking hat gems out there and stuff like that, and, and like the gems trying to do you over, mm. and that's what leads to quite a lot of poor player behaviours. They've been trained that if they don't double check everything twice and get the ten foot pole out and listen to every door, that they're going to get punished for it, and the gem will say, "I can't believe you didn't check for X," and that's why these mm. things now happen to you, and why you why you have to rip your character up, you idiot. So there's that kind of bad behaviour, but I think part of that comes from our experience anyway, when we were, you know, young teenage boys, when you did weird, mean stuff like that and bullied each other a little bit and <laughs> had, had bantering like, oh, I can't believe you rolled a one then, you idiot. Like it's anyone's fault what the D20 turned up as you rolled it, that kind of stuff. So there's no of that, and that's what I, I don't like in some of the newer OSR games where they kind of lean into that sort of... You, you sort of go around the dungeons poking stuff, but more or less everything you poke is going to hurt you. Yeah. So where's your incentive for poking stuff? Because you just like it's like, oh, well, you should investigate this room that's got these weird potions. And do you want to drink any? And all the results are bad, yeah. effectively, apart from one good one. It's like this is. I don't understand the fun people get out of that, but some people do. Um. And a bit more, a bit less adversarial GM versus players and environment versus PCs is a better way of doing it. There's certainly games like Forbidden Lands and. Others that kind of like lean to that and Torchbearers have mentioned. But even some of the narrative elements I think you can get out from playing the dungeon honestly. Mm-hmm. So instead of having people fall down a pit or even rolling to see if they spot it or whatever, have the collapsed pit already where someone's already been through and triggered it. Yeah. And there's a thin ledge down either side you can go across and you can take your time. So you don't need to make a roll because you're taking your time. But you're aware that at some point, if you needed to rush, you say it'd be quite dangerous and then that sets you up for later on the adventure when you've done the thing but the dungeon starts collapsing and you get back to that same pit and now you'll have to make a roll because it's under pressure and you look down at the body of the long dead adventurer and they're impaled on the spikes that you might end up on and then that pit trap suddenly becomes more interesting and that's just a narrative element of doing foreshadowing yes which we can use in other other ways in other story games or whatever else you might want to do but um, a bit more honesty about the environment and Knowing that you're all in together and like the gym is not trying to screw you off, he's presenting you with like this is a thing you're gonna to have to face at some point, mm. and then it's up to you whether you want to spend time building a plank bridge over an old pit trap or whatever else you want, might want to do, or mm-hmm. you just push in and lean into it and go like they all laugh because you know that ultimately you have to make a roll sometime, not now but later it's coming down the tracks. Yeah. Um, so there's ways of using the old school stuff and being less person versus person and more environment versus character or you know, story points versus immediacy of action, mm. which I think there's some good lessons you still can learn and some good features you can take out of it. Just don't play it in the old school way that perhaps you used to when you were a snotty-nosed kid and didn't know any better. Yeah. I think there's, uh, there's still some really valuable foundational stuff from a dungeon that can work really well in a modern way. And there are some other very, very poor habits that I think should have been long ago jettisoned. But yeah. sticking to the positive stuff, if think if... If you look at a dungeon and treat it as a flowchart, I think it essentially is a flowchart, then that can be very good for tight scenario design, mm. regardless of genre, time period, etc. And what dungeons are very good at is giving the party, it's an old-fashioned term, <laughs> they're giving the party um, really clear choice 
points. Yeah. Left or right is a choice point. With no other information, it's a poor choice. There's mm -hmm. no choice at all, is it? It's just random. Yes. But if you take that to 1920s Arkham and you're uh, tracking down some mad cultist and you've got your city in front of you or a town in front of you, then essentially you've got corridors, rooms, encounters that are waiting for you to go and knock on the door. Um, but, you know, again, that poor practice is nothing ever moves in your dungeon. Good practice is that the time is ticking while you're making the decision that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. There are other things happening behind the scenes and it's a dynamic living environment. Yes. But being, being constrained is often a good thing. And in mysteries and investigations where, where you're in a completely open world, I often get lost chasing red herrings, going to post offices that no one had prepared for, right. that kind of thing. That, that's much less likely to happen when you've got corridors linking scenes. Mm -hmm. um, so dungeon design can help you put together a much tighter scenario that's, that's a bit more location-based, possibly event-based as well. But there's, but you, you can actually, as the GM go, you can go this way, you can do that way, or you can do anything you want. You've always got that sort of like option D, haven't you? Yeah. And anything you want. But that's in some ways for some groups, in some situations, that's a bit easier than like that moment you load up a brand new video game and your avatar is standing in a desert and it's so open world and Pick you say, out. what do you do? Yeah. And you think, oh, I don't really know what to do. <laughs> Yeah, and part of that's the narrowing of options, isn't it? Which you yeah. do in investigative games where people get stuck and you kind of go, well, you know, this, this and this, and you haven't spotted this person and gone to this place. So mm. what do you think we should do now? Something we're on choosing or maybe follow one of these leads? And that, and it's, it's constantly trying to, like, cut off the uh, the branches that can sprout out from investigations. Mm. Right? You're right. Uh, and a good thing I've seen from OSR is that some of the dungeons that have been rent in terms of, they are literally flowcharts. There's, like, nodes with yeah. light and edges like, between them. And your left or right is do you go to the Goblin Warrens or do you go to the uh, Old Forge or whatever it might be. Mm. But you don't need the dungeon map of what the Warrens look like because then that leads to people going, I go left, I go right, I go left, I go right, trying to like navigate the right around mm -hmm. some five foot squares. Uh, but you just love what you say, like a scene based thing. Like if you go left, this is the thing that's going to happen. If you go right, that's the thing that's going to happen. It's a nice way of doing a dungeon as well. Yeah. Um, and another way of getting through quite a lot of dungeons, we've talked about Mega Dungeons briefly, but Deck the Dice, I know, uh, ran for us, uh, I think it's Lair of the Scorpion Men or something, it was one of the old Ring Quest things anyway, and Snake Bank Hollow possibly, but there was like six dungeon rooms in this before you get to like a main one, mm. and he just did it as a montage, the old 30th age montage, and said, okay, in this room it's the wolf lair, what does that mean? Well, some wolves are attacking us, uh, how do we get past this? A player describes how they did it, they present the next challenge based on the next room's title, which might be, I don't know, <laughs> Scorpion Men Egg Hatchery or something. Well, that yeah. straight away gives you ideas. Yeah. Uh, and that was a nice way of like bashing through quite a lot of what would have been otherwise painful old school dungeoneering yeah. and poking things or not. And, you know, it, it comes down to a lot of what we say about role playing is like you want dice rolls to, for things to go in two different directions and you want meaningful things to do. And that's probably one of the the old bad ways of doing dungeons quite often. There's lots of rooms with nothing in them. Mm -hmm. And the descriptions were often very trite. You know, you go in a kitchen and it starts describing pots and pans. We all know what a kitchen looks like. Yeah. And if there's nothing in the kitchen to fight with, to find, to interact with, a clue, a puzzle, why are you even wasting any words on it? You might as just have, like, number 10, kitchen, move on. Uh, much better would be to have locations where things happen. And that goes to your kind of uh, allegory for... Adventures, if you've got scenes with no NPCs in or there's no clues to find, maybe just trim those scenes mm -hmm. and like narrow those options again and make your dungeon, which is your investigation, a lot tighter and make sure everything that's in it has something that the players can interact with to make it interesting. Yeah, I mean, the empty room in the dungeon is potentially a podcast all of its own, but <laughs> just to be brief on this, I suppose. Uh, the empty room is there because in uh, in old school D&D, &D, you need somewhere to camp. You need a safe place, don't you? Or mm -hmm. something that you think is safe. Because your wizard only had four hit points at best and just yes, cast sleep about three hours ago and wants to do something else. So um, you've got your 10 minute adventuring day, yeah, which is a meme, and then you need to spend eight hours sleeping in a stony <laughs> warren. Last <laughs> night, listeners, I slept on a sofa for the first time in a long time. I regret my life choices on this because I was kind <laughs> to my guests. Oh my god, the idea of sleeping in a dungeon now, it just sounds yeah. exhausting. 
we can't light a fire because it might attract exactly oh god yeah they don't need the equivalent of a pot noodle iron <laughs> rations with no water <laughs> awful Some dry biscuit so <laughs> so imagine my horror when um when i first started getting into powered by the apocalypse games and and the brave soul volunteered to run dungeon world and have me on board so dungeon world is one of the very early ones i think almost simultaneous release with um uh, with apocalypse world um, and it's Apocalypse World through the lens of classic Dungeons and Dragons. And um, it's a game that has got a, a lot going for it, don't get me wrong, but it's a, it's a rough diamond in my opinion, and I think even in the author's opinion now, they would, they would have another go at it. But it was supposed to be a very different way to play your Dungeoneering. And I'd read the book and I thought it was really intriguing because there's no map that they provide you. There's no scenarios really that you can buy for Dungeon World. Um, you do generate maps, but they're generated by everybody around the table as you play. So you're, you're doing that, what was previously GM Lonely Fun, you're doing it on the table. Yeah. Which means that the idea of an empty room rarely comes up, mm -hmm. because everything follows from what went before. Yes. So in that particular situation, it wasn't really a perfect emulator for the old days, but did it benefit from not having to worry so much about tracking torches and equipment and so on? And yes, it did. It, we, we got a lot more story out of it. The downside was that this GM had decided to use an AD&D module to run Dungeon World with. Right. So it didn't take very long at all before there was a complete grinding of gears as we're trying to do fiction-first gaming with lots of player input, collaborate on results, and he's saying... Do you go left or right at the next fork? And I remember we ended up in an empty room. <laughs> and I thought, well, this dungeon world can't help you anymore at this point. Because no. you have to have something to interact with. There has to be some looming threat or danger or something is happening. What do you do? And in an empty room, there's nothing happening. <laughs> what do you do? We do nothing. And then the, the engine that is powered by the apocalypse sputters and halts. Yeah. So at this point, of course, the GM is supposed to use threats and fronts and that sort of thing. But in this dungeon where everything was written down that the hobgoblins live in that room, they're in room 32, but you're in room 33, and never the twain shall meet. So it was a poor experience, but I don't think it was Dungeon World's fault. I think Dungeon World was, was genuinely trying to do dynamic dungeoneering. Yeah. And yeah, I've had, I mean, I've had problems with Dungeon World as well, along the lines of... Um... <laughs> I think it got, we got to a bit in the dungeon where it was kind of like sneaking past uh, a sleeping dragon or something, mm. but got just abject failure after mm. abject failure. And there's like there's, there's only so many things you can roll into before well the dragon's woken up, it's going to eat you know. Because yeah. I've kept like laying on that thick as that's what the threat's going to be, and it's got fiery breath. And if you fail too many times, it's like oh well we just we're all burned then aren't we really roasted? Anything else sounds doesn't sound great, and then it feels a bit you lose what the Dungeon World experience is supposed to give you and that you've, you've just had like an OSR, OSC style death yeah. for your character because you, you failed your death save or whatever, ultimately. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think Dungeon World works for dungeon type adventures. No. Weirdly, even though that's what it's supposed to be. I don't think it does either. I don't think it's the right thing. call it Dragon World. Yeah, and it's it's like pitched as, you know, a D and D for people who don't like D and D. It's like, well don't don't play D and D then. It's the <laughs> spit it's a bit odd. It's a curry with no spice in it. Yeah, it's like curry people don't like curry. They just don't, don't have, have a Chinese then or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, so we're in the 21st century now. We have been for some time, which always alarms me. Now, yeah. So let's move away from like AD and D and, and grid paper and so on. But that idea of the dungeon still sits underneath quite a lot of stuff, doesn't it? Mm. Um, we have uh, a kind of a newish tendency for post-apocalyptic games mm -hmm. there's an obvious sort of dungeon analogue in that you're moving into like vaults and things like, like that and yeah and i think a lot of post-apocalyptic games like in mutant year zero or or apocalypse well for that matter can be about scavenging yes which is just a sexy term for finding magic items in, in a tomb isn't it yeah is it the same kind of yeah it depends if you've got if if you're resource depleted or not, doesn't it? And you go down trying to find resources. You yeah. play Fallout or some other like computer-based game where you're just excited to find a cache of tin cans because you mm. can make something else out of them, or that kind of stuff. So yeah, a lot of the, a lot of what we described before about like, do dungeons make sense and why do you go down them repeatedly and all the rest of it is like the thing to make them work in the twenty first twenty first century is having 
what sort of driver for our characters and then somehow build the dungeons into that. Mm. Uh, and if you're playing a post-apoc game where you don't have any food but there's a vault that might have some the freezer that still works in the bottom of it, mm-hmm. well, there's a very good reason for going into that vault then. Like, why don't we just leave? Well, because you need to bring that food back or you're all going to starve, so you have to do it. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's trying to find drivers for why you would do the thing that were previously was just accepted. You go down dungeons because that's what you do to get mm-hmm. golden XP. Um, and they can make interesting plot points. And as long as you've like you set up, if your dungeon's now um, an oil rig in what used to be a sea, but now it's a desert or something, well, that sounds cool and interesting. I want it to go does. explore that. Yeah. And, and how do you get up there? Because it's you know it used to be a, a mile deep sea, and now there's just like a mile of steel rusty pipe out ahead of you. How do you climb up that and, and all the rest of it? And what challenges do you face? And who got there first? Yeah. Who's there at the minute? You can mm-hmm. see twinkling lights on or something. There's a fire being lit somewhere, or yeah. Uh, I think in the 21st century, it's trying to think of like legit reasons why you go to dungeons. Yeah, is the thing the thing that will drive it. I think so. I think we're a world away from uh, White Plume Mountain, something yeah. I owned as a kid, which is what they now call a funhouse dungeon. Right. Um, and I, I didn't understand that at the time. I just I thought it was cool, and there's some really nice puzzles in that, and there's some great magic items, and you get a choice of three corridors at the start, and each one is a mini dungeon, but there's nothing to differentiate, etc. <laughs> So the old, it was a mad wizard that did it. And that's why there are owlbears and gelatinous cubes running around. That, 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 that really does feel like a product of its time. Mm. Um, and I am much more inclined, as you are, for interesting locations that can absolutely be room-by-room room clearance type stuff. Uh, factions, so stuff moving around inside there is always really important to me. And good fun as a GM as well. If you have like an order of battle in a in a modern dungeon where you've got a, a, num- a number of goblins, hobgoblins, and orcs. Yes. But where and when they appear, uh, whether it's on patrol or whether it's a lone one having a wee outside the camp or whatever, and you're crossing them off your list, that just feels like more fun for the GM to play. Yes. Rather than refereeing something static. And then I like I like genre twisting. I like I like dungeons in space. Mm-hmm. Death Star's a dungeon in space, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, even a Star Destroyer is kind of a dungeon in space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I like the well a couple of bits we've done so patrons uh, if you are a patron you'll have seen and if you're not or a recent patron you can always go back and look but I did write an adventure uh, for our patrons so you can go and get that if you're for the measly sum of a dollar or less Uh, and that had a kind of dungeon after another adventure party had already been in it Mm. and it's kind of the aftermath and you've got like say the the, the goblins and the orcs are fighting amongst each other and there's one who wants to take over the tribe now but they're all like cowards and the lowest levels of what's left of the dungeon and stuff. Hmm. But having having things going on uh, makes it more interesting, like you say, like a bit of a living dungeon in itself, like the, the people that are there, why they're and what they're doing with their lives. And then you put the characters against that yeah. or in that backdrop with things happening and things change around the back. Well, if they don't clear things out in certain areas, then they'll carry about their business. Or maybe now you've killed all the orcs, it means the goblins can have a resurgence out of their warrens because the, the orcs aren't keeping them in there anymore or whatever it might be. But adding interesting bit like, like that makes your life as a, a GM much more uh, enjoyable, for sure. And it just adds more texture and tapestry to the dungeon itself that you're using. Mm. Which I think it's just... It, like I described this in a Twitter feed recently about how to create an adventure and stuff, but a lot of the thing that will make that work for it is the why and the, the why is the owlbear in that room or why the, are the gelatinous cubes can often lead to something interesting that you can put in your dungeon yeah. or in the adventure or the reason why things are there the, the whys are always the good questions for setting up some of the cool stuff that might happen mm-hmm. yeah and um, just following a train of thought isn't it really mm. gelatinous cubes are obviously bonkers and they're like you know dungeon Roombas <laughs> whistling around not whistling around moving around like 10 foot at a time you can always out them yeah. uh, but you know you, you can just follow that train of thought to see what would happen if a gelatinous cube falls into one of those 10 foot square pits and yeah. now it can't get out but now falling into that pit is even more dangerous than it used to be and it's just you can think of fun scenes to do with stuff in those kind of environments that's what dungeons are quite good at Yes, it's putting frames around scenes and having the ingredients within that scene all move around and interact with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if people want to look under the drive-thru RPG, you can find uh, The Bone Alchemist, the the adventure that I wrote. Oh, I've heard that's quite good. It's, it's very good. Great reviews, five stars. Uh, 
But that, that has that sort of thing in where there's a big giant sea beast that's being cleared out. So that's a dungeon. Yeah. And one of the things in it is that the guy who was like shoveling around a, with fire beetles sending his last of the cube round to like build corridors inside this massive carcass. He, something happened to him and now the Jotter's Cube just ended up sinking through the monster. So you, you have indeed <laughs> got this big pit with Jotter's Cube with the bottom. He's quite happily eating his way through a Leviathan, which will take many years, but the Jotter's Cube doesn't get. But the players might, if they <laughs> stumble upon it. Sort Absolutely. Of but like, you know, having that, I guess it just makes it slightly more interesting than it being a, a stone dungeon, the fact that it's a, a sea monster and it's slightly collapsing around you and there's, you know, all kinds of other things you can imagine from the intestines of a a sea creature that just gives you like great I think it gives you good hooks yeah it's, it's just makes everything more interesting it, it doesn't feel to me like a dungeon then because I think that's part of the problem isn't it? when we talk about dungeons a lot of people sort of cast their mind back to a certain type of play and a certain uh, way of doing things and certain interactions they're going to have to have and actually dungeons can be really fun in the modern day mm-hmm. uh, and come up with all kinds of different plot points and things if you just think about them a bit, a bit. Yeah, yeah, and there's a, the inspiration is everywhere now for these because back when we had graph paper and random tables, we would make try and make sense of uh, d six random things that we'd rolled up and maybe move stuff around a little bit, but the entire video game industry is built on people who did that. Yeah, and they've come come up with some really really cool environments and little closed in mystery boxes of rooms, and they can be great fun, but they're still innovation in RPGs. I yeah. want to mention. Um, Eyes of the Stone Thief for Thirteenth Age. Thirteenth mm-hmm. uh, Age is is a, is a lot of looking at D and D and going, what would that look like now? You know, mm-hmm. it's the equivalent of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I suppose. And let's just reimagine all this stuff. We've yeah. got these ingredients, but how can we make it plausible <laughs> or exciting? So in Eyes of the Stone Thief, the idea of a living dungeon is literally that. This dungeon is alive, um, and it's blind because it had its eyes nicked. <laughs> and it's a bit like the shark in Jaws, and it's roaming around underground, motoring through the soil, bursting up through towns and trying to eat you. And if you get inside it, you realise you're inside a living, breathing, weird construct, yeah. which is full of things that it's eaten before. And they've all been in there for a long time, and um, there's all kinds of weird factional stuff. And then the dungeon itself is moving and grinding around like some kind of weird puzzle box. So you chip, you chip away some bricks from the wall and there's all kinds of weird tendrils behind it. <laughs> it's a really lovely idea. And if that idea sounds fun to you and you like the idea of, it, I think, a 400-page book all about it, then, you know, 13th Age, as always, does D&D right these days. It's the modern yeah. Earth Dawn. Um, and that's really well worth a look for what a, a classic Dungeoneering experience can be through a modern lens. Yeah, I guess another aspect there you remind me of with puzzle boxes that there are, used to be, puzzles for the players to solve not oh, yeah. the characters but quite often it might even be pieces of art and you have to work out which stone to press or it could be you know some logic puzzle or it's um different urns that have to move in a different direction or yeah. work out something about the gods very much the a dungeon thing ways. isn't it as yeah. well you wouldn't see these kind of things in in courtly intrigue no not at all and that is a bit chalk and cheese though so yes some people do. i've seen some dd folk on twitter recently talking about it again oh don't you love puzzles and games and some people do and some people don't. But that is that is an interesting feature of uh, Dungeons used to get quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, Team of Horrors was a bit silly, but there's definitely an aspect of having things to figure out which certain players find really interesting yeah. and engaging. Like, how do we work our way around this? Uh, and as I said, you do get some of the people who say, can I just roll intelligence? Because they don't mm-hmm. even want to be bothered. But that's it's something that you don't, you're not going to get on a wilderness adventure necessarily, but for Dungeons... It's it's uh, I don't know it's a feature of all like TV shows and all kinds of things and computer programs and it? it's just uh, it's a feature that 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 particular type of game brought and may or may not still hang around depending on whether you like it or not. Yeah, so I quite personally I quite like a puzzle, um, but you never quite know what how whether the challenge is appropriate for the people around your table and it's yeah. often a bit of a solo venture, isn't it? Where yeah. one person goes, give me that handout, and then they zone out for fifteen minutes and they come back to you with a solution. But I think, you know, if they're done well, I think they are a really good bit of, of dungeon play. The idea, that, because it gives you more to do than just hit it with swords or spells. Mm. So you've got to overcome something or you've got to figure something out. And yes, it does use player skill, but come on, we're players. <laughs> we can't be that immersive all the time. Of course, you have to use your own brain, I get it. Um, 
and it, and people say, well, yeah, but you're not expected to be able to swing a sword in real life. And oh, it's a game. 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 Get over it. So, um, I quite like some of the puzzles, and uh, the very first game I ever played of Tunnels and Trolls, um, I remember that when we we defeated the baddies in a room, um, and we were divvying up the treasure that we found. In amongst the treasure was a small piece of wood, uh, and uh, had two letters um, engraved into it. I think it was D and T. Oh, by memory, it doesn't particularly matter. It didn't make any sense on its own, but it became really apparent after two or three rooms that there was there was one of these tiles in every single one, and we were going to slot them all together, and then something would happen. And as is the way with these campaigns, we never finished it. I never did find out what they were, <laughs> but this is a memory from 1979, folks, and it's 2023. <laughs> so this kind of stuff can stick with you. Yeah, it really can, and it's not a, like you, the Tomb of Horrors, where you stick your hand in a hole and. It just gets eaten and there's oh, great thanks very much that's just russian roulette isn't it mm. but but something where you can get that sense of achievement and uh, where it assists what's going on around you anyway if you do it right where the puzzle can be like an assistance to you can buff you in an in an, uh, an encounter that you could otherwise defeat anyway even if you don't touch the puzzle yeah that can feel really good for people mm. i think you, you can borrow stuff from uh video games and stuff where it's like if you if you solve the puzzle, you get something, but you don't have to. I think that's yeah. the important bit. As we were saying, like some yeah. dungeons can be quite linear in that you have to go certain ways or the certain choke points. But having uh, that left or right fork that we talk about, and one way is you have to solve this puzzle to get through it, and the other ways you find mm -hmm. some bugbears to get through it. Mm -hmm. That stops it being a roadblock and gives people the opportunity to do the thing they like doing before they move on to the exactly. next. Exactly, I think the idea of a, the modern idea of an escape room is is a dungeon. And um, there's there's loads of escape room stuff that you can do, and, and I, I suspect there's a Venn diagram of escape room fans and role players. It's pretty big. Yeah. And um, I have plenty of the escape room at home games, Exit being one example of those, and they're really good. And you can absolutely loot those things for cool scenes to put into your adventures, um, that are always kind of creative, and they're, they're certainly not just breaking codes all the time because that's going to have a fairly niche appeal to many people yeah but they're really accessible um and and then you know guys you can do your crafting stuff and go mad on handouts and stuff can't yeah, you yeah, yeah. jigsaw pieces and stained bits of paper yeah what fun well that is for me <laughs> <laughs> some people will view that as prep and hate it but okay yeah i mean there's a limit isn't there i mean i've been in places before now where they've written on the a piece of paper in lemon juice mm. and it relies on someone being a smoker in the group to have a lighter to light underneath the paper to read the words on it <laughs> and so it can get ridiculous <laughs> yeah but yeah give people outs or let them make an Italian's role eventually or other things uh, and you can you can have some fun stuff yeah now speaking of fun stuff the the other side of that particular puzzle coin was the other statement is the trap mm -hmm. so puzzles used to be like tricks or traps didn't they Yes. So a puzzle, a puzzle would be another word for a synonym for that would be a trick, I suppose. And then traps, now traps have massively fallen out of favour. They were everywhere when I started. Yeah. A traps just, it's almost like everybody in the industry got together and went, these are bullshit. Because <laughs> it's quite difficult to find what I would consider to be cool traps that 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 work for players. Yeah. It's very easy to just drop rocks on people. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of memes about that. And you remember Grimtooth? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so those sort of traps. And White Dwarf would have traps in every single month. <laughs> yeah. So you could exercise your creative creativity by designing death machines. But your modern D&D &D players probably won't encounter very many of these because they've just not really sat with the modern audience, have they? They've seen it as just no. punishment for punishment's sake. Yes, and there were largely like that back in the day. It was just a way of draining resources or hit points or mm. some makes a death save the dead. That feels arbitrary. If you're dying a life or death struggle with a mind flayer, it can feel like a bit of an epic death. If you happen to roll badly and a rock falls on your head and you die, it, especially if you've been through several levels of a dungeon, it just feels arbitrary and unsatisfying. And yeah, Grimtooth's books, he did several of them, they just got more and more ridiculous mm. to the point where it's like, why would anyone set this trap up? It's super expensive, require a lot of construction work and various moving parts. Like, you just why what, what is the purpose of it even being here yeah with no one to observe it and you get a sort of like it's the very similitude and, and lack of sense of uh, disbelief at some points as well when you even have like poison dart traps but you're in the pharaoh's tomb which has been around for two thousand years <laughs> is, is they really saying that this poison still got efficacy 
after two millennia and not just like turned into dust and disappeared. Mm. And the springs still work on the traps, really, do they have to be held in tension for that length of time? So it's um, having traps, they've got to be there's a reason why they're there and do they still work and what, what are they protecting and who set it and what? Yeah, they're just not really. Uh, it comes back to my why question it's like, why is it there? And how is this going to make this interesting? Whether they succeed or fail in it. Hmm. So there's still a place where some of them are sprinkling, but I can't see anybody getting excited about them being there. It's back from that time when things used to be adversarial and you thought you felt good because you used your 10 foot pole to hit the stone that triggered yeah. the trap. And you felt like you won because you'd, you'd spotted it before it got you. Yeah, and and, and your modern D&D designers, D20 onwards really, have, have kind of wrestled with this a lot. Of how do we put a trap into an encounter? What does that do? Does it make it more unfair than it needs to be? Balance is difficult when it comes to traps. Mm-hmm. Really, really tricky. And I think it's just, yeah, it's just been hard to, to get it player-facing in a way that's engaging. I think it can be done, and plenty of smarter people than me have done really good ideas with this sort of thing. And I, I do like the idea of traps. I like the trash compactor in Star Wars. Mm. I like the rolling boulder in Indiana Jones. These are good things, you know. And maybe they are a bit specific, but where I've seen it done quite well, I've tried to do this myself in the past, is, and it all bleeds into stuff that you were saying earlier, mate, about a living dungeon has had people in it before you got there, almost certainly. You're not opening a brand new one. It's not box fresh on the inside. So, And I've always got a rival adventuring party, always. And they're either ahead of you, behind you, or with you. So sprung traps can be quite nice encounter scenes for exploration. Mm. Ones that have already gone off, where you've got like an adventurer pinned to the wall by spikes. Yeah. How long has how long has she been there? And yeah. does she still have stuff in her backpack? Is she still alive? Barely. Where's the rest of her party? And is there any more? You know, or yeah. is she just a booby trap herself? So as long as you can interact with it in a relatively safe way, playing that kind of bomb disposal expert game can have some fun. Yeah, well, it's part of this making it dynamic as well. If you've just got a pit trap, and then, well, you make Claire also get out of it or whatever you say something, but that's pretty... I mean, really... But if you've got a pit trap, and the fact that somebody crashes through it alarms the orcs next door who are yeah. waiting for somebody to trap it, because they keep re-triggering it every door, resetting it, you go, oh, good, some adventures have fallen, and we'll get them now while they're still trying to pull their mate out of the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good. That's suddenly a good combat encounter, because you've got two people down yeah. the bottom, and two people are still up, and someone's holding someone by a rope, doesn't want to drop them because they land on the spikes again and take another load of damage. And the orcs are having a whale of a time because they've got you in a terrible position. Yeah. That suddenly makes a, a trap interesting. But I think the, the static traps on their own not doing anything. And not like, like, like you're saying, providing perhaps clues to other people who might be here or whatever is quite dull. So it needs to be part of um, a choice or some other dynamic action that's going to happen. Mm. Or as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's there and you know you're going to have to make dash rolls to get across it when you're under pressure. Yeah. And you can see it coming. Yeah, I think the Forgotten Tomb is is absolutely fine to have traps guarding it. The, yeah. the strictly Indiana Jones stuff. I think the Desert Desolation stuff did that, didn't it? Mm. The Pharaoh's Tomb. You were literally tomb robbing, and it's it's perfectly acceptable to have right. coffins with skeletons in them that jump out at you. So like every room is a trap, isn't it? Yes, and that that's the theme for that dungeon, isn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. But otherwise, I think in more modern adventures. Uh, like even the D and D starter sets, of which there've been a few now, haven't there? From, mm. from Wizards, they don't have so many dungeons in them at all. Um, you know, uh, there's lots of wilderness stuff and town stuff, and the dungeons tend to be more like lairs. So sometimes five or six rooms, there's something living there, and if if that is your home, you don't really want a death trap outside every door, do you? Imagine going to get milk in the middle of the night. Yeah, you to go for a wee. Like, oh, <laughs> bloody trip wires. <laughs> I've ended up on that tripwire again. (laughs) Just to keep out the the, the idea of some burglars might be coming by because I keep my gold here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember, I think I remember, I might miss my remembrance, but I'll mention it anyway. It's like one of the Icewing Dale type adventures. Hmm. Um, There's a, I think it's like an old dwarf temple, but the dwarves got cursed because they did something. I know the one. And it's half collapsed, but now orcs live there or something. Yeah. It's full of jellies. That's a decent idea. It's full of jellies. And the weird sort of trap element to it, if I remember this correctly, is that there's um, there's some secret corridors, because of course there is, in a dwarf temple for some reason. Uh, And like one of the black puddings is like in between two secret doors. Mm. And like that just feels really odd. 
Mm. Like, if they don't find the secret doors, then it never happens. Yeah. And the reward for finding one if they do is they've got to fight a monster that's challenge rating two, and they're all first level characters, which is unbalanced. And why is it that? Well, what, the, what the f is the black pudding doing there? Yeah, it's trapped behind two doors. Like, what's it eating? Does it just live forever? <laughs> is it really starving? Is it like what? He's come back to my why questions again. He's like, why is that even there? Why have you got secret doors? Why is there a black pudding in them? And why? Yeah. Is it, yeah. Or why does it do nothing regardless? You know, you create a fight for no reason if you find it. But hints, I'm dead. You see, your skeleton guardian. <laughs> is pretty patient and they're not being paid by the hour <laughs> i do remember that exact that exact um mini dungeon they are all layers aren't they there's yeah. not very much to them but i also remember it being an absolute monster to try and play around an actual table because if you try and replicate with my art skills on a vinyl mat or just a notepad some of the bizarro very pretty architecture with like loads of pillars and little wings and strange corridors and so on it takes you 20 minutes to draw it out. On VTT, all of this is solvable, but even yeah. then you get really complex looking environments that are yeah. essentially just an arena for you to smack some ochre jellies around. And the players don't care. They don't. I mean, he's trying to, try to describe the architecture. like, yeah, but, but what are these? They're ochre jellies. Oh, well, we need to fight them then. And yeah. all your stuff about the frescoes and the pillows is lost. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're more worried about like not dying or getting hit points snapped <laughs> or whatever. Oh, frescoes and bass reliefs. I never knew what they were when I was eight. Oh, no. <laughs> and I hate myself as soon as I mention, because people say, well, what are they up there? I'm going to look. Yeah. I'm going to do some, like, chalk rubbings against them. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Does it really matter? Yeah, and, and well, for that stuff, what I, I had to, like, scale up and print out loads of A4 sheets with mm. squares written them and, like, literally lay out, like, tiles on the, yeah. the table. And, yeah, as I've just mentioned, what really happened was they went, how far away is it? Can I shoot it? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to do with the rest of the architecture. So I guess you've got to you got to be careful how much detail you put in your dungeons. And if you do mm -hmm. put frescoes or other details in there, will the players care? And what difference does it make to the story you're trying to tell right now? Sure. Uh, you know, we hinted at it earlier. Don't list the contents of a kitchen. People, we know what a kitchen looks like largely. Yeah. We really do. And and I think you can just put a lot like Dirk did with his game. You can put a lot in the title of the room, can't you? Yeah. So abandoned library is you really don't need this is a library and it is abandoned written underneath yeah. it. You don't need to write them like books or shelves, like that's a given. That's we right. that. Yeah. yeah I, I, there's still lots and lots you can do with these kind of things. You can make stuff more more dynamic and interactive. I mean, the idea of zones is relatively new in gaming, I suppose, for encounters, but a zone in a dungeon room is really quite a nice thing to do. Mm. So that's where you can put your stuff that's on fire, stuff that's rickety, um, stuff that's elevated, but without going to the level of having to get your computer-aided design out to sketch maps and so on. You can yes. do theatre of the mind dungeons. can be loads of fun, mm. but you need to get away from a 2D grid for yes. that to really engage you. Because I, I find, I've, 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 I've been a big defender of D&D over the years, but I've played enough of it now where I feel like I can speak with some authority that when you put down a 2D grid map, people start counting squares. They do. And... and if you like counting squares, rock on. I, I, I want to see people swinging off balconies, please. Yeah, maybe play 40k. Yeah, I remember we played uh, against the Hill Giants. It was one of those. Mm. And we burst into this cavern to face the, the Hill Giants or whatever it was. And they're all in like anti-fireball order. So they're all like stood 30 <laughs> feet apart, whatever it was. Go, Jeff, move five feet that way. Just so the mage couldn't fireball. It's like, yeah. are they not in the middle of a feast? This seems a bit weird that they're all stood there, like socially distanced yeah. COVID giants or something. <laughs> but you can't but help get yourself in that mindset if that's the sort of thing that you present. Yeah. So yeah, zone play or something is quite, quite interesting. It adds a, a literally an extra dimension, doesn't it? You've got some up and yeah. down in your rooms then. And some of the good stuff you see on Twitter with people doing like isometric dungeons mm -hmm. that are in like an abandoned volcano or something or... Mm -hmm. Have like cutaways of mountain sides and vertical bits as well as the sideways bits, and all that's quite interesting. But you do struggle, I found sometimes, to like um, relate to that to players at the table. Yeah. As a GM, you look at the map and go, that's well cool. But then you've got to describe it and make it sound cool to your players. Yes. And let them know what you they can interact with. It's an old dungeon trope, but when you've described a room, people will then say, Are there any doors? Or because you've forgotten to say where yeah. the exits are because it looks obvious to you on your map, but you, you didn't mm -hmm. say it out loud to players, and they have to try and orient it in the heads as to like how do we even get out of this room? Is there a way out? There is a real art to it, 
and, and, and a bit of science too, because it's the old game of telephone, isn't it, where you whisper something into someone's ear and then they tell someone else. So whenever you've got an adventure in front of you, even if it is your own notes, I really do think it's worth doing your own customised box text. Yeah. Box text that someone else has written, well, that's in their voice, but you kind of got to do your own. Do your own and, and you need to... You need to tell people what they need to know. You don't. You certainly don't tell them everything because just leave it there for them to go and poke it later. But you know, don't bury the lead either. If there is a hobgoblin with a halberd in the middle, charging towards you, describing the tapestry behind him first is is no good for the tapestry, the hobgoblin, or you. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lose lose description. The number of games I've played where someone starts talking about how they're going to identify the piece of the tapestry was like, wait a minute. <laughs> There's, a, there's an amber dragon that's He's trying to eat you. I've got to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and I've I kind of made a pledge to myself ages ago to not use compass directions in describing things. Because mm. when I walk around in my normal life, I don't turn north when I go towards the school <laughs> oh, library. I turn right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, describing is everything is on the western wall. I mean, I'm not even entirely sure which direction north is now, and I'm sitting in my own house. <laughs> I think it's roughly over there. <laughs> And you won't know. I'd have to get you my phone out these dungeons. Get an electronic compass out to yeah. check. You know, but. Yeah, but ahead yeah. of you, behind you. And another little simple linguistic trick. Like, try to look out for this one. You'll see it all the time. And I say it all the time. So you can catch me out on this at a con. And you do it all the time too, mate. It seems to be. Yeah. Or appears to be. It's kind of. Yeah. No, it's not kind of. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> there appears to be some goblins here. Yeah. Well, all right. Yeah. <laughs> a step closer there are goblins here yeah. <laughs> as if they come into resolution <laughs> some kind of wood no it's wood yeah. like, don't stop adding extra words yeah seems to be a door seems to be closed <laughs> it's kind of sort of like you can eliminate all those words from that sentence yeah. they don't need to be there. I get it in the moment people are trying to be mysterious aren't they yeah um, or partly you're padding while you'll get your thoughts in order slightly yeah. yeah yeah. with charity I'd say they're building up the suspense but actually you're probably closer to it than just <laughs> scrabbling <laughs> just mentally <laughs> doggy paddling trying to get your thoughts in order <laughs> yeah so there's definitely an art to describing what happens in a dungeon but that does take us kind of a circular way back to the best thing about them is that you get to describe the stuff and it's delineated mm. Um, and when we move on to further episodes in this series, we'll talk about, I guess, the difficulties of explain or describing open world scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a dungeon, you've got left, right, ahead. You've probably got something trying to eat you imminently or something that's trying to kill you. And uh, you've got the stuff in your backpack really matters. Yeah, you're on an expedition and you've probably got a really clear sense of what you need to do. Yeah. And I think it's part of it is um, described by exception. So if there is an amber dragon in the room, that's the first thing you want to mention. Yeah. And if you're in your abandoned library, you say there's a weird light coming from the back corner first away from it. So like, the weird light is the most important thing, not the shelves yeah. or books or cobwebs, which we know will be there. That's all taken for granted. So try and cut that stuff out and mention the exceptional stuff yes. as points of interest. Yeah, it's, doing an inventory list is, is really not necessary. Um, and hopefully you've built up enough trust with your players. And again, this will be a modern style of gaming where if you say abandoned library, hopefully your players aren't going to go, are there any books here? Well, let's just say that there are, shall we? And I think it's safe to assume, you know, because you, you, in your description you will set out the scope, yeah. the framing, the environment, aren't you? And I think part of it is like thinking yourself what you would ask as a player. So if you're going to have an abandoned library in your dungeon... Mm. Someone's probably going to ask if there are any interesting books here. If That's books. right. So you want to think ahead of time of like, there is an interesting book here and this is what it is. That's it. Um, or maybe don't have an abandoned library. Yeah. Just don't. Uh, which it, quite often you can put things in because they make sense for you as why the wizard had these book rooms and he's long dead doesn't use them anymore. But if there's nothing we're going to do with them at the table, don't have them. Or, or think of a thing that's in that, that makes it interesting. I mean, and for, like... Yeah, as I say, just try and put yourself in player's shoes. But if I was in here and the GM said, it's a stone-cold forged, I'd be thinking... What's the next most likely response? Yeah, what well, what did they used to make? Or is there like anything mm-hmm. like half-finished? Or like was this, is there stuff we can nick? Are there like masterwork tools? Like that, Those are the sort of questions that pop to mind. Yeah. So stick some of them things in there, or one of those things in there. So there's something that is going to forestall the what's in here kind of questions. <laughs> it seems to be. Let, let me tell what the cool thing is. Yeah. 
<laughs> it seems to be some bellows. <laughs> okay, so uh, what's your favourite dungeon experience ever? Oh, crikey. I know, right? You don't do I a lot of dungeons these days. I don't. Do no, it's, it's going back to Earth Dawn again. It's um, Terran Skies, I think it is. Mm. I hate Windlings in Earth Dawn. <laughs> I don't mind them as NPCs, actually. But that has a care, which is essentially a dungeon, and it's full of dead Windlings. So I enjoyed that a lot. But it's kind of got, um, it's kind of got, see, I'm doing it already. It seems to. It definitely has like a rickety um, lift, for want of a better word, or like. Like an elevator. Elevator type thing. Dumbwaiter thing. Yeah, sort of thing that, that gets you into the dungeon yeah. first, because the windlings can fly. So again, it's the why, why would they? And it's like, well, for windlings, they'll need one of these things for loads of gear, but otherwise they're just flying up and down there. Mm -hmm. They don't need a ground level entrance. Why would they fly there? But it makes it difficult for the other characters, the adventurers, so that presents a challenge and the reason why it's mm -hmm. there and it all makes sense. So I'm down with that. And at one point, like the wood gives or the rope starts to snap and then you've got, okay, well now it's, it's kind of a trap, mm -hmm. but it's not really a trap, but it is a hazard that you've now got to face and work out what you're doing about. So it's got lots of good bits like that. There's, there's one or two bits that are kind of like enforced by the game for drama points, which are a bit annoying. But there's things like um, when there's this sea of bones of all these dead windlings, it forms into like this bone golem monster at one point. Like, right, cool. So it's not just that we've got this story point that there's loads of dead things. It's and then out of those bones, we're going to make a monster that people fight. Mm -hmm. So there's it's not a massive dungeon, but there's things in it, and they all make sense. And the features that you have in there, because it's a, an abandoned, careful of dead people, effectively. Well, what can we do with that? Like, what would make interesting encounters along the way? So I think it's a good little neat example of how you can do a dungeon. Mm -hmm. And, and the other point I'd make is that you mentioned earlier that dungeons are smaller these days and like, like well that's good so there are still people who like mega dungeons but I'm glad these days if you have six to eight rooms that's normally plenty it is. you get a session out of that if you put enough stuff around it very easily get a session out of that maybe two so how about how about you for a favourite dungeon have you got on yeah but it's it's a kind of a guilty pleasure <laughs> two of horrors it, it seems to be a guilty pleasure well uh, there's um there's kind of a rich tradition of dungeons, isn't there? And, I, and I, I'm a bit of an adventure collector. Published adventures are more my bag than yours, aren't they? You yeah. prefer to publish your own adventures. I do my own, yeah. yeah so, and, and I've bought and owned all of them. No, no, honestly, all of them. So I've, I've never played the Tomb of Horrors, but I've owned it multiple times, and every time that D&D has gone back to it, returned to the Tomb of Horrors, another returns it. I have all of those. It's unplayable. Even good old Rob Schwab did one for 4E, which is pretty good. I've not played it. Maybe one day. Um, so I buy all of these things and sometimes I buy mega dungeons or sometimes I buy stuff that's got really good reviews. So some stuff that I would give a nod to would be Deep Carbon Observatory. Mm, yeah. Patrick Stewart. Yeah. As a, and it's not just for the dungeon. I, I actually prefer the bit outside the dungeon before you get there. But it, as a place, as a hostile environment, my goodness me. It's, it's really evocative. And that does come across in the game, and it's got a rival adventuring party. But um, my favourite dungeon, uh, it's weird to say this, is a thing called the Bane Warrens, which is written by Monty Cook. Now, Monty Cook has been described as your cool older brother <laughs> who knows AD&D far better than you ever will do, but is willing to run it for you and your mates. Right, yeah. So his D&D is D&D turned up to 11, as in it uses all of D&D, and it and it's internally consistent. So you know, Monty Cook is a clever guy, well read, and understands his games very well. So he knows that speak with dead is a spell. He knows it's in the player's handbook, and you need to know it's in the player's handbook too, because there will be a situation where that will be exactly the right tool for the job. Right. And he understands how magic items work and how the economy works and so on. So this was part. This was his dungeon that he used to play test third edition. So he had his setting of uh, Tolus with a silent P on the front, right? which is a, a vast and really interesting setting. And the Bane Warrens was his dungeon in it. So as he went road testing all of the stuff for third edition, he chucked it all into there. So it is nearly all in there. Right. It's got an entire monster manual in there. Uh -huh. um, so that makes it feel a bit disjointed, but he's put a cool kind of evil overlord in there and it does actually make sense. And the maps are asymmetrical. And there is shortcuts and really, really interesting rooms that are like escape rooms. Really interesting mm -hmm. puzzles. And it's never arbitrary. Never, ever arbitrary. 
So he's made it all work together. He's made it sing. And I've, I've taken a couple of groups through it, and some of them have hacked and slashed their way through it, and some of them have been more considerate and done the faction playlists in there and noticed that the second time they went there, the orcs had been replaced by ogres or whatever. Um, and it's worked in a couple of different directions, but you kind of need to have Monty Cook come with it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, like many things, like anything written by Kenneth Hyde is brilliant if Kenneth comes and does it for you. <laughs> I'm not that good. So when I'm translating other people's works, Monty's stuff is, um, yeah, it's something else. It's like a Swiss watch of dungeon design, right. which is arguably you don't want to wear your fancy pants Swiss watch to every event because it might be to get damaged. It <laughs> yeah. might be slightly too exotic and perfect for when you've got a couple of guys around with some beers on a Friday night after a hard week at work. There we go. The Bane Rhymes by Monty Cook. Beautiful. Good. Well, uh, time's up. Well, no, we still get to live after this. We don't have to make a death save. But the time for the podcast is up. Uh, We're going to have a long rest. Yeah, let's do that. Get spells <laughs> back. I need one after last night. I know. Yeah, quite a lot of bees. It's a very nice time we had, though. Yes, thanks to all our patrons. I shall mention, I've mentioned you previously about what you can get free. There's other bits and pieces on there. Uh, Ben's starting to add some of his art. I might add up some like notes and adventures in like uh, bullet point format yeah. just to get some ideas out there. Uh, all kinds of things. Check out our Twitter feeds as well because we occasionally post some cool stuff on there. Thanks for supporting us if you do. If you can't lend us a dollar or two here and there to pay the internet man, then any kind of sharing on social media or telling your friends about it, all good stuff. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you back when we'll talk about other aspects of gaming, like going out into the wilderness. Yeah, you, outside, now. <laughs> <laughs> it will involve a fight. <laughs> Until next time, dear listeners. Bye for now. Adios. Thank you.